so excited and happy to introduce Stephanie Clemens. Stephanie Clemens in the house. (laughs) Um, Stephanie, thank you so much for joining me today. You're all the way in London. I am all the way in London and um, it's an honor. Chris, so happy to be here. And um, it's 1141 and there's nowhere else I'd rather be. Ah, don't make me cry. (laughs) There's like so many things that I want to chat about, but I just figure I think it's a great place to start, you know, um, you know, kind of where your journey started as a performer, as a choreographer. I mean, you're in London right now putting up Hamilton as Mm -hmm. you're the associate choreographer for it. So amazing. And I think it would be really great to hear, you know, your journey from the beginning and kind of how, you know, how you got here? Sure. You know, I always find that question, like, like, while the person's asking me that question, I like think back to all these like really nonlinear events in my life (laughs) that led me to um, this place where I currently find myself. Um, And so I think that, you know, it's important to say that while I can give a quick version of where, how, what I think the the key milestone moments, right, that were that got me here. Um, I do think that you know part of part of what I love about my job is that it exercises so many versions of myself, right? It exercises the performer, it exercises the intellect, it exercises the you know human resources, sort of into it, people, person side. Um, it exercises. <laughs> the part of me where I'm not the best people person and I have to check myself. So, um, I basically started out as a, um, dancer and I danced my whole life, you know, from two years old, like in the womb. Uh, and I, um, I went to college at Rutgers university and I double majored in college. So I double majored in their only dance major there, which was modern dance and um, genetics and microbiome research. And now for the first two years of college, I sort of teetered I back and forth between, I only want to be a science major. Well, I only want to be a dance major. I didn't really only want to be a science major, but my parents felt as though, you know, like what's the point of getting a degree in dance, quote unquote. And so um, I realize how offensive that is to say out loud. So I'm just like, <laughs> not throwing them under the bus, but that's like, that's real talk. Condone that. Yeah, that's real talk. Um, but so that was like sort of their opinion. And, um, I had a scholarship, so I didn't necessarily like, I felt need their opinion in a way because like, it wasn't like, I didn't feel the guilt of like, Oh, you're paying for this. And so I have to listen, but I did trust them as parents. And I was like, okay, well, let me see if I can do both. And so that took me until about like the second semester of sophomore year, you know, I tried one and then the other anyway. So I, uh, was a modern dance major and I knew in college that what I really wanted to do was be on Broadway. So my, my deep, dark secret was that I didn't actually just want to be a dancer. I wanted to sing and dance on Broadway. And I didn't really say that out loud until like my junior year of college. And so it was like, it came as, I didn't think it was a shock cause I'd been thinking it my whole life, but like everybody sort of felt like it was like a shock to them. Um, and then, um, that's like, so like the nonlinear bit, right. Is that like, I didn't do anything to prepare me for musical theater Mm -hmm. up until that point. 
you know, outwardly. Yeah. And then you're like, I want to be on Broadway. <laughs> right. Um, and everyone was like, how do you know you can do that? And I was like, I just know. Um, and so sort of fast forward to my first year in New York where I only had the skill set of a dancer. And so I didn't really know how to do anything but that. And so I, that's what I did. I, I danced, I did a lot of backup dancing, you know, lots of really cool things that you do when you're younger, like dance at Madison Square Garden for like reggaeton artists and all these fun things. And it was amazing. But like all the while I was like, I just want to be on Broadway. Um, and so, uh, I found myself again, fast forward in, um, my first equity job, which was Bombay Dream. Um, yeah, Bombay Dreams, the first national tour. Yes. Bombay Dreams. <laughs> How I yes. met you. Um, and so um, through this, you know, really great happenstance turn of events, I was on the bus with a friend of mine from tour. Um, uh, and he was like, there's this show you should know about. And I was like, okay. It was a demo. His roommate at the time was working as an intern at a literary agency that happened to rep Lin-Manuel Miranda. And he let me hear these four songs of what was in the demo of In the Heights. Um, and I was like, oh my God, the show is so cool. He's like, it's right up your alley. It's what you need to do. And so I saw an audition for it when I was home on a layoff in September following that July 2005 when we spoke. Um, 2006, 2005, 2006. Um, and I went to this audition and I met Andy Blankenbuehler and like the moment I met him, I was like, Oh my God, I, I get this dude. Like I get the way he works. Um, and so that's how I ended up with, with Andy. Um, you know, and there's about three other legs of the story of how I got here that are as strong as that. And then, cause I've been talking forever, this, the sort of sh short answer of the, the other leg is that when I was in younger, I used to go to sleepaway camp, like a lot of Jewish kids do. <laughs> and one camp. of the sleepaway Love camps it. I went to <laughs> <laughs> Love it. Um, was this performing arts camp and I was meant to return my first, so my freshman year of college, I was meant to return to the camp as a dance counselor. And I got there literally like, arrived at camp, like with my, you know, I'm the dance counselor. And they were like, Oh, we actually, we hired too many dance counselors this summer, but we're going to start a new position just for you. We think you'd be great at it. And you're going to be the resident choreographer. And I was like, what does that mean? <laughs> and they were like, you're going to choreograph the musicals this summer. And I was like, I've never choreographed a musical in my, like, I don't even know where, where would I even start? Like, that's just a crazy thing. Right. Like, I don't know the first thing about putting together a musical. And so I kind of like learned by fire, like flew by the seat of my pants. I choreographed three musicals that summer, Jesus Christ Superstar, Bugsy Malone, and a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Um, and so just imagine like choreographing top to bottom, three musicals in two months with teenagers. Yeah. <laughs> like you yourself were how old at this time? I was 19. So yeah, it's like kind of like people that are almost cutting your age. Right. And you're right. like, okay, I got to do this thing and, you know, exactly. command all their attention and get them to be like super into it. Right. And, and, you know, I felt really proud of myself after that. And what I really felt, what I loved, which was this sort of feeling of like, after you put something together and you've had this whole team of people sort of band around this vision that you have and they've worked really hard to make it work. And in the end, you get to sit there and be like, you guys, like you did that. I couldn't have done it without you. Thank you so much. And that feeling of like gratitude. And I think that some part of me like really loved making things on people and watching them excel at it. And then feeling like we, we did that, like that sort of team feeling of that. Um, and so 
that's like a, a huge sort of origin story of how I got here as well. You know, like when I, so now like to put the two together, when I joined in the Heights, there was only one spot left for a swing and I became a swing and um, they needed a dance captain very shortly into the preview run because of like a series of injuries that had happened. And they were, the dance captain was on stage for like three months and they were like, well, we need someone to be the dance captain. And so I became the dance captain again. Like I didn't even know what those words meant in, in that order. I was like, what is the dance captain? What do they do? And so I learned sort of trial by fire. My first show in the Heights, I was like the dance captain of the show. I was much younger. I was like the third youngest member of that cast in a cast of like 27, no, 24 at that time, I think, because we only had two swings. So I was younger than everybody. I had the least amount of experience. And so again, it was like, how do you get the respect and attention of people that you, you know, and, and, and I, I just learned to keep my head down, work really hard. And it was definitely not easy at times. Um, that's like the simplified version, but I learned to, you know, overcome and have all of these, you know, things that were not necessarily in my favor and figure out how to slowly make them work. And so when I did that, Andy sort of saw that. And then we, we came together and we choreographed, obviously, um, bring it on. He choreographed, I associate choreographed. And, and then, and then it was time for Hamilton and, and here I am. <laughs> what a journey. And it sounds like kind of like a theme is that you've always said yes you know, you've had this like attitude of like saying yes to what comes your way. And I think that obviously has served you well. Would you agree? Yeah, I, I, I would agree. You know, I had an ex and she would always say, she's like, you're such a yes person. I honestly don't see myself like that when you say it. I'm like, oh yeah, I guess I did say yes. I don't necessarily think of it that way. Um, I always sometimes feel like I have like my heels in the sand. I'm like, what do you want me to do now? You know, like, I'm like, <laughs> yeah. what do you mean? I don't have that skill set. <laughs> But what I do feel actually more than I'm a yes person, the thing I do feel is I have always been lucky in having people beside me that are like, they're like, you can do this, go do it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Like Andy's like, you can, you can be, the, you can associate, you can be the leader, you can dance captain, you, you know, people in camp, you can choreograph those things. And I'm just like, if you say so, like to me, it feels less of me being like, yes. And me just having like really lucky circumstances and unbelievable people around me who were like, go for it and do it. And really feeling like looking back on it, I'm like, Oh my God, they were right. I could do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like your tribe, right? Like they have like so much like faith and trust in you. And it's a matter of you just kind of like being open to that and receiving that. Right. Cause I yes. feel like a lot of what we do, I mean, probably not just in our industry, but kind of everywhere is that we doubt ourselves, but it's like, like you get to a point where you have to kind of be like, no, if all these people around me that I mm. really respect and, you know, have faith in, have the same kind of faith in me, why wouldn't I just believe in myself and do it? <laughs> yeah, that that's the truth. That's more what it feels like. That feels more like my truth. Um, and, and I think that the interesting thing about that is that like, I'm at this really interesting place right now where you know, I've done enough that I feel like I have justified my existence in this business. I You've mean, proved yourself. In, in a way, in a way, in a way I, I feel right. In a way, I feel like if I stop tomorrow, I feel like I haven't like done nothing. You know what I mean? Um, but I, I think that I'm in this place where I'm sort of navigating the world where I go, you know what? Like I did that. Like, good on you. And like, you deserve, you deserve 
to, to say, you know what? I know I can do that. Right. Cause sometimes we don't even let ourselves say like, I won't even say that in public. Like I won't even say like, Oh, I can do that. Yeah. You know? Cause it's just like, we are like, can, can I, but like, I feel like I'm in a place where I'm like, Oh, I know I can do that. And like, I'm okay with that. And so it always, I always like, um, you know, I feel now like I'm in this sort of place, which is really interesting. Like where I'm sort of on the other side of like some sort of mountain that I've been unknowingly climbing where I feel like I can be like, Oh yeah. Like, okay, I got that. Like now let's do the next mountain. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. It's like a new kind of like a new, a new chapter, right? Like, yeah. so you've, so actually this is actually a really great kind of thing to kind of observe is you've been able to manage kind of balance, you know, this, this career as a performer, but also being on the creative side. Is that something that you kind of always envisioned for yourself or has it happened organically? And how do you make that decision. So if you're like, say you have a project that's presented to you and you have the opportunity to say either perform in it or to be like on the creative side, you know, to do, to do say like choreography, how do you make that decision? This is a thing, Crystal. I I love it. (laughs) I absolutely did not walk quietly into this storm of navigating both of these things. In fact, I would say, you know, like those movies where like, like the person keeps like making a right turn to like avoid the danger. And then like somehow they've made like two more right turns and they're like, how did I get back here? Yeah. (laughs) Choreography has been like that for me, but like times a thousand. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Like every time I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Like I turn a corner. I'm like a field of here we are again. We're back in the field. (laughs) I love it. Yeah, it's it's it got to the point where I I I in my late twenties, you know, which is where like things really started to change. It was like when I associate choreographed my first Broadway show, and I was like, you know, everyone was like, if you appear as a creative team, like if there's a chance that people won't ever see you as a performer, again, right, right, right. And of course, all those things don't matter, and that is not true. And I I now know that's not true. In a, it's it's only as true as you make it. It's not that it's not true, but if you if you say okay, you're right, well then it, they're right. But if you say actually no, then right, you make your own truth. I believe yeah, that. for sure. But for um, sure. the the thing that sort of happened to me was that I got to this place at 26 where I was like like my career again, like my time at 19 when I just wanted to sort of like dance and, and then I'm in charge of this other thing. And, and it happened so many other times between those two. Like I was in my first off Broadway show I was ever in the choreographer left after the first incarnation and the second incarnation, like you're going to choreograph it. I was like, I don't want to choreograph it. I'm in it. And they were like, yeah, but you should probably just like, just choreograph it. Like you're the best dancer on the show. You should choreograph it. And then like, I was in this other off-Broadway show and I was just meant to be a performer. And the choreographer was like, you're so good. Can you be my associate choreographer? And then I was in this other show where I originated this role, this great show called Tea with Cha-Cha-G, which is like another South Asian show. I was played like the lead Ama, like I played one of the lead women and the director choreographer was like, you know what, can you make up these two numbers? I'll give you associate choreographer credit. So like, this is the place I'm going into at 26 where I'm like, I don't understand. I just keep trying to perform and it just keeps coming back. And it's like literally the weed that will not die. Yeah. It's like at and some point you're just like, got yeah, like so to like six, <laughs> You have to write, you have yeah. to have like a sort of reckoning with yourself and with God and the universe, whatever you believe in and be like, mm. This obviously is something you're obviously sending me a message because this is, I can't ignore it anymore. Like, what am I meant to do? 
And that week, I kid you not, Crystal, that week I got three choreography jobs. And I was like, okay, I get it. (laughs) And so it's like, I can keep saying that I want to perform and I, I think I'm a great performer. Like, I think I'm good at that. Like, I don't think I'm, you know, I'm not the, I'm not Patty Lapone. and I'm You're not, amazing. Like, I've seen you and you were incredible. Um, oh, that's very <laughs> kind. Thank you. I appreciate it. Um, but I, I, I love doing it and you know, I think I'm okay at it, but I have to go say to my life, I hear you. Like, I hear what you're saying. I hear that this is a thing that I have to pay attention to. And that is to choreograph and I can make time to perform and I can do all those things, but choreography is not going away. So find a way to make it stay. And my way of making it stay was this really great relationship that I had with Andy, which was Mm -hmm. he valued me as a performer and not just Andy and Tommy and Alex and they, you know, all of these people, they valued me as a performer as well as a creative voice. And so they let me do both. And, you know, going into Hamilton, I had said to Andy prior to that, cause we had sort of, we had created this other show to get, I had helped him build the show. And then I told him I didn't want to be his associate. So like, I just wanted to perform. So in the last moments I was in the show and he hired a, a mutual friend of ours. Who we both love to be the actual associate. Um, and I also said, I didn't want to be the dance captain. So then we hired someone else to be the dance captain. And wouldn't you know it third day of rehearsal, a, I, a bar comes crashing into my ankle and I have to have 10 stitches and oh I God. end up sitting next to him for the whole rehearsal process. So he's literally building the show with me sitting next to him. So like, I didn't even get to just be a body. Like yeah. I was with him the whole time and, a, you know, and like, I'm not going to sit there and be like, he's like, what do you think about this? I'm just like, you know, so like I was there. And, and then of course, like the dance captain's like, you're Andy, you're Stephanie Clemens. Like, I'm not going to sit here and run rehearsal without asking you like, what do you, you know? So it's kind of like all of those things that kept coming up. I found a way to kind of do both. And when Hamilton came around, I said to him, like, I just want to perform in it. And he was like, look, there's, I said to him actually with Hamilton specifically, because Hamilton, we heard my shot for the first time when we were in tech for bring it on. Lynn's like, I wrote this new song. You're going to love it. We like listen to it on a 10 minute break. And the second I heard that song, I was like, this is going to be, this is something I don't know that I want to miss choreographing with Andy. So like, I don't know that I should say no to this one. And I was on the fence for a really long time, quite honestly, up until six weeks before we started the workshop. And I was like, what should I do? What should I do? And, and I was like, well, who's going to be your associate if I'm in it? And he told me who the person was. And I was like, well, that can't happen. That's it's, I, I just know for, for you and for me as a performer in the show and for you as a process, like that's not going to be good. And like the show, this music and all the stuff that we're creating deserves more than that. And so, and so I, you know, I was like, I, I really want to do this with you. I think it's going to be a big deal. And obviously that was a good choice. Um, but you know, they were really generous and they were like, you can swing the show, you can be in the show and do that. And so that was just a really nice sort of, you know, way to navigate both. So I'll say that when I was in college, I had a Dean, the Dean of the dance department. And when I told her that I was going to double major, when I remember I told her I went back and forth between majors. So like I started out as science then I moved to dance and then I decided to do both. So when I I told her, I was like, I'm going to go back to also majoring in science. She was like, just so you know, if you want to, if you want to work as a dancer, like if you want to be successful, you have to choose dance over everything else. So like you taking on this other major, like I know that you're not going to make it like you're, you're just setting yourself up for not making it. And I was like, I, I think you're wrong actually. And, and we fought for the, 
rest of my two and a half years there. And, you know, because I was a genetics major, like my, my GPA really mattered. So like I was getting A's, A pluses, no A minuses in my sciences classes. If I got an A minus, that was like the lowest thing that happened. And she would give me like a B minus on my choreography semester. I was like, are you, are you kidding me? Like, like I told you my, my GPA matters. Like they're averaging all of these things together in order to take my classes next year for genetics to graduate with my degree. I can't have a B minus on my credit card. Cause you can't, uh, my, on my, not my, credit, my report card. Like <laughs> you have to, you have to get, you have to have like a B plus or above to continue in the major. So you're literally like sabotaging me. And so I had to fight against that constantly. I did all this extra work. I went to school in the summers and all of these things. And it was just like, I broke my foot so I couldn't perform in a concert. And she's like, well, you're not performing. So you have a C minus by default. Uh, it was just like all things like that. And so I'm not saying that it's easy to do both. And it's never been easy for me. Like even in college throughout that, like I had to work for it, but if you want it, you can make it happen. And also like the universe supports things that are meant to be for you, right? Like your Dharma unfolds. And like that, like if you continue to knock on a locked door, it's because the open one is next to it and you're supposed to look at it. And so I've always felt really strongly about that. And like it, I, I look for those opportunities and I try to not, not continually knock on a locked door and not that persistence isn't a virtue, but like, there's also like making things happen. Yeah. And like at some point, like you just, you know, it's like doing the same thing over and over and like expecting a different result. Isn't that, you know, the, um, the definition of insanity. Did Einstein say that or something? I don't know. Someone said that (laughs) some dude said that, but actually no, it's like an interesting thing that you say, because even like you were saying how the universe will literally like make things happen like you know a bar will come smashing into your leg to to make sure that you're on track and it's like it's really up to us if we want to listen and embrace and to be mindful and aware of what's like coming on our path right exactly I'm curious to hear now going back to like when you were a kid like what like what kind of kind of training did you get and were your parents like did you start to dance at the age of, of three, like a lot of people did and, you know, do like a lot of different training growing up or was it kind of something you did more recreationally? Like what did that look like? Yeah. So I, um, I did start dancing at three, um, before three, I was like dancing with Madonna on MTV. That'll like really date me. <laughs> um, but so I always wanted to dance. Um, my mom was a single mom from like two years old until eight. And so making my dance work was like, took a lot of coordination by all parties. And, um, I went to a dancing school, which was, you know, it was really good. We, what we, it wasn't like a community that had a lot of money. So like, we weren't really like a, a competition school. Mm-hmm. Um, and you grew up where? Again? I grew up in New Jersey. Okay. Yeah. Um, and so it was like, so I went to this, this dancing school, but like we didn't compete and not that that's not anything bad, but like, it's interesting. Like when you come into this, this world here, I've noticed like a lot of people like know each other from the competition world or like they've spent their whole life taking classes with these teachers. Like when I met Andy, I was 23 and he was like, where the hell did you come from? Like, why have I never seen you? I'm like, why would I have seen you? Like, to me, I was like, I didn't even know about this other world that people were like, he's been like breeding people from five years old. Like, you know, like, so that was my training and it wasn't super like 
um, technical, uh, you know, it wasn't like based in a lot of technique. However, we did have like Irish step dancing there. And so I got like Irish step dancing, tap, you know, jazz, ballet. So like I had a nice little mixture of things. And then when my mom got remarried, we moved. And so I moved it at like eight. I started a studio. I didn't love the studio. And at 11, I was like, I'm, I actually got hurt. And I was like, I'm going to take a break. And then I took a break and I was like, I never want to take a break again. So we went into a new studio. That studio was not for me. Those kids were rich competition kids. They had been in competition from whatever age. And to me, they were not dancing. They were like, doing acrobatics, which is like amazing, but like it was not dance and I didn't find it enjoyable. So I left again. So I actually moved studios quite a lot. And I ended up in a studio that I loved in the, in 11th grade, my junior year of high school. And that studio had everything. So they had, you know, like hip hop wasn't really a thing yet. So there was like, you had like jazz that was maybe like street jazz. You had like old jazz, like stuff like that. Not, not street jazz also wasn't a thing, but like they had more well-rounded things. And I had it, you know, in my earlier years. Um, and they had like an unbelievable competition tap team. So like I brushed up on my tap, like quick, like, and, um, and so, you know, that was like the, the school where I learned a lot of things. It was a school where I learned about like, you know, acting and taking, you know, I took my first voice lessons in 11th grade, you know? And so like, there was like lots of things that were, um, really beneficial about it as well as, um, you know, this, the one who ran the studio, George Warren, um, and his husband, Stephen Waldrop and my main teacher, his name was Mickey DeFranco. They all were unbelievable influences. Like, it's funny because you can go to schools your whole life. And I had this great dance teacher when I was in my in-between years named Sherry, who was amazing. Um, and I loved her and she was like a, she did like cruises growing up. So she had all these great stories and like her dance ability and lyrical was great. But I learned like everything I know about my work ethic for dance and um, what it means to be a performer from those from those people, from Mickey and George. And and so those two last two years of my training ended up being really, really informative, you know. Um, So that was my whole background. I feel like you can learn kind of everything you need to know about life in terms of discipline and all that kind of stuff in a dance class oh yeah I feel like I've heard a lot of people say that too you know it sounds like um that the jumping around from studios like at the time was probably not a fun thing but now looking back on it it was probably a great thing to have you know exposure to two like so many different kinds of people and students and peers and parents you know you have to deal with so many like different dance parents and all these different studios so you know absolutely like at the end of the day it was probably a good a good thing to have experience yeah and like in my in my one studio before that studio I was one of four and we were it was four dancers in the whole high school like that's all because I lived in this really small town and so it was like you know one was 14 one was 18 one was and it was like just the four of us in all the classes the tap class the ballet so like you were just like the best like it wasn't like you know, there was a girl, one girl was like a sick ballerina. She went on to dance with ABT, but like, so I wasn't the best ballerina, but I was the best at everything else. You know, it was like, I I was very serious about dance my whole life. Like I always wanted to be a dancer. I always, I was born knowing that dance was my passion. Like that's a lucky thing. Cause I think not like, not everybody has that. A lot of people search for their passion throughout their life. Like I knew that dance was my thing that I loved. And so I, 
I just knew that I was going to do it. I was going to be a dancer. Like that was not a question, which is kind of why when I got to college and my parents were like, what do you mean? I was like, what do you mean? What do I, like, I've been saying this. Did you think I was kidding? You know? And so I think that the thing that changing studios taught me was that I, I was the best of four people. And then I got to this competition studio and like, they could all do five turns at the same time. And I couldn't do three. And it was like, Oh wow. Okay. Well, there's another level. Like, like level up. And my dance teacher never made me feel bad. She was like, she's like, work harder. Well, and I'd be like, but I can't, she's like, what you can, you just are not. So you should start working and stop complaining. And that was like, Oh, that's such a simple formula. Like that's the truth. Like stop complaining and just work on it. And when you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you're working. Like as we get older, do you think it's possible to do that? You know, if you're in your twenties, maybe even into your thirties, like, is that something that you can continue to hone in terms of technique? Or do you think at some point it's like, okay, you know, like you kind of like hit, hit a plateau and that's kind of it. You know, Twyla Tharp is famous for only wanting to use dancers like over 30. And I actually felt when I hit 30 years old, I could turn so much better than I ever did in my 20s. And I don't know if it was because in my 30s, I learned to be vulnerable and let go and not hold everything so tight. Um, But I feel like I had this sort of window where I just like got better, like magically. Um, And so, but now of course, like at 35, I'm like, my hamstrings are more likely to pull than they ever were, or my hip is more likely to like, so all those things are also true. But I also look at some of my friends, like I have Rosie Fiedelman who's in Lion King now, like she's beautiful as she ever was. And like, she's definitely certainly not having a problem with like using her technique. And I know so many dancers like that. Right. So like, I've also spent a lot of time behind the table. And so that I have to also factor in that, like, if I'm not practicing every day, I can't expect to be getting better every day. Um, But I will say that I think when I went to go see the Adams Family on Broadway, B.B. Newirth did this solo. I don't do it. I don't know if you ever saw that show, but she was not kicking high or doing anything crazy. But my God, was I mesmerized. And I was like, oh, my God, that's that's why you're, that's why you're BB Newworth. Like I get it. And there are moments that I have where I'll be doing things. And like, I, I try not to make, I always say like, I'm not dancing for that. Like I'm not trying to make a spectacle. Cause I also don't believe that you should stand in front of the room and just like try and blow everyone out of the water. Like that's not your job when you're teaching. Um, but I feel like, you know, my, my George Warren, this dance teacher who I told you I had in 11th grade, he one time, this is the perfect story to explain the whole thing. Is like, we were doing this across the floor combination. And he's like, guys, I want you to watch, you know, Stephanie and so-and-so. And we, I was like, why? I don't know why he's putting me and her together. Like there was no apparent, whatever. We did the thing and we got to the end. And it was like, there was like lots of turns in the combination. I couldn't do the turns. We got to the end. He's like, I want you to notice something. Who did you watch? And we asked someone, they were like, Stephanie. He asked someone else. He asked three people. They all said Stephanie. And they were like, he was like, well, she fell out of the turn and she, and he basically was making an example of me. And he was like, dancing is not about how, how many turns you can do or your technique. It's about the way you express yourself. And while that wasn't necessarily the most flattering (laughs) comparison, and I've clearly never forgotten it. So it was a little bit traumatizing. um, He, 
he had a point. And like, I went with this competition team to their next competition, the Paul Abdul competition. And like, out of everyone in our school and our whole age range, I got the scholarship. And like, I couldn't do any, nearly as many turns or leap as high or do all these things. But like, I had something while I was performing that obviously made me stand out. And I think that that is a thing that only gets better with age. And so, yes, do we reach a point where like your performance quality gets better and your technique gets worse. And so eventually they, they become sort of so disparate that they don't come together. But at the same time, like you can watch BB Newworth do a dance thing in her fifties and be like, that is absolutely as much of a fine wine as watching a 22 year old soloist at ABT do that. You know, it's, so I, I think there's like worth in both of those things. So while I, I think that you can continue to hone your technique and I think every body is different. And I think the age where dancers quote unquote have to retire is later and later because people are appreciating their bodies and taking care of them better. I do think that the aspect of performance never really goes away and that only gets better. Mm -hmm. I think that's such a great thing for people to hear because, you know, as we get older, you know, we come to uh, these points in our life where like, ah, do I want to continue performing? And it's Mm -hmm. like, you know, I'm in an audition with like 20 year olds or 18 year olds that are like jumping into the splits, like, you know, and like you think about all these things and you're like, wow, do I want to keep on doing this? But I think it's so great for people to hear that performance is something that never really suffers if you don't want it to. You know what I mean? That's something that you can continue honing. And if anything, like you're right with more life experience and things that happen to us like that make us, you know, those things make us better performers. Yeah, All of, you know, the highs and the lows of life, like all that stuff. It's, it's real stuff, you know? So if you bring that into it, there's like a lot of value in that. And I think that's a really important you know, thing to drive home, point to drive yeah, home. Um, 100%. So now coming to, and I mean, like, I know a lot of people are going to want to hear about this, like, you know, because everybody, you know, I feel like every musical theater performer is, you know, dying to do a show like Hamilton. And there's so many companies now around the world. And now you're involved in the casting of this show. So if, if a dancer comes to audition for Hamilton, like, you're the first person they're going to see essentially, right? Like you basically will, you know, you know, basically run the audition, right? Mm -hmm. So what, what do you and the team look for from performers who come into audition for that show? Um, I think first and foremost, and this really comes from Tommy, Tommy's so good about putting together like a, a cast of human beings, not a cast of performers. And so, um, while you can't judge someone in like the first 40 minutes of knowing them, you can, you know, kind of get a sense that someone like walks in the room and like just pushes past people. And, you know, that's like not a human being that I want to spend a lot of time with. And so like, that's a really important factor as far as like how you carry yourself. Of course, it's not like, also there's like the flip side of people like so fake and nice. You're just like, okay, like easy with like the saccharines, you know, you're like, like don't try so hard, but just like be a nice person like just be normal yeah just be normal (laughs) um what is normal right um so uh but yeah so there's like there's that um I think as far as dancers go I think Andy style has like a sort of unique quality to it and so I do find that every once in a while someone will come to audition we're like oh my god they get the style like this like I feel like when I met Andy I was already like the way I understand movement was already how he understands movement. And so when he would explain things, I was like, I get it. 
Which is what? Like, like, what would you say specifically? What is that thing? Um, that I'm going to get a doctorate in it one day. Yes. I'm not kidding. It's like, I, it's, there's so many, the way he sees dance to me is like gravity. Like the way you wouldn't like look at, at an apple on a table and expect that it was going to fly up into the sky. Cause it's makes sense that it's down and it's grounded in that way. Like that's how his movement makes sense to me. Like breathing. I can't describe it. Um, and one day I will, but I can't describe it in this podcast cause it's not long enough. Um, but so like, I get that, but n- n- that's not how everybody perceives movement. It's not how everyone perceives dance. And so you have to understand that like, similarly to like, if you were walking into a class of, you know, where they teach Latin and the teacher speaking Latin, you're not going to walk in and walk away going, I know what they said. Like you have to study it. And so I think the first misconception is that like someone can walk into Hamilton and be like, I thought I nailed it. Like I always hear that from people like, well, why don't you give me a call back? And why don't you? And it's like, there's, you're missing something. And the fact that you don't see what you're missing means you really don't understand the movement. Like that's even more so of you saying like, I don't get, I don't get the point of the movement. And so it's just about, and that's just, that's not like, that's not magic. That's spending time with it. That's like, if you've been in an audition for Andy Blankenbuehler twice in your whole life and you think of movement differently than him, well, you're not going to get it after the second audition because people have been going to take workshops and take his classes in competitions and they were little and coming to auditions for five years, first for in the Heights and then for bring it on. And then for, and now they get it. Right. Mm-hmm. Like the way you'd study anything. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It takes time. It's not like an overnight thing. And it's not just like a random, random series of movements. It's, it's, you know, like I've seen the show obviously twice and I love it so much. And I like one thing that really, really sticks out to me in terms of the choreography is that it's like, a decoration in a way like it's it just enhances it's like it's like the spice in a dish you know what I mean like it's so just uh, I, I can't even articulate it like it's I'm I'm doing a terrible job of explaining yeah. how I feel about it right now but it's like <laughs> I, it, I it enhances the story it. you know what I mean yeah. and, and it's not like it's there there's no real like when I look at it I'm like okay yeah I'm not, I don't feel like, it's almost like I don't even feel like I'm watching dancing, if that makes sense. Does it's, that... it's, it makes total sense. All, everything that you said, <laughs> just the so you gibberish know, that I just spoke, the gibberish <laughs> that you said is all exactly spot on. It's exactly what makes the thing, the thing. And, um, you know, being able to, you know, not being able to articulate that thing is, is part of what makes it you understand how different an approach it is. While the movement is not like we're just moving, you're humans, you can only move a certain way. It's the way that you approach the movement that makes things so different, right? Like you can see two dancers and they can be polar opposites, but they're working with the same amount of muscles and the same amount of bones, you know, more or less, give or take. Um, but that's exactly right. Like the way that his movement, I always like to think of it like a, like a fresco, and so there's a, a lot of, as a dancer in the fresco, right, you have to understand what the whole painting looks like. You have to understand your place in the painting. And then you have to understand all of the things that are the painting, the temperature, the color, the all of that, right? So all of those things that you said are true. It feels like a spice. It feels like, because it's not like, what I think you're trying to say is, it's not like other dance that you see where it's like, 
and now the dance comes forward and then you're meant to watch the dance. Exactly. In Hamilton, you're never really meant to watch the dance. You're watching the show, but the, it just happens to be that the narrative is being told simultaneously through dance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that totally, I think, yeah, that, that exactly is it. Yeah. So yes, I, I agree. <laughs> It's, uh, yeah, it's such a beautiful show. And I hope, I mean, I know it's super hard to get tickets, but I hope everybody gets the opportunity to see it because it really is, you know, and With I would How many companies were opening Crystal? Everyone's going to get sure to see it. <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So how many companies are there's, okay. You're in London right now putting up the show. This is our fourth. Wow. Rehearsals for the fifth company start the week that we open here. So that'll be five. Amazing. It's the second national U.S. tour. Wow. Um, and then, of course, the and Peggy company, the company that's opening in Puerto Rico, has been announced now. Which what? Is going to be that's end of next year. Amazing. That is it's, awesome. It's not staying in Puerto Rico forever. It just is opening there and then it's moving. But that'll be the third uh, U.S. tour. And so that's that puts us at at six by the end of 2018. Three U.S. tours. That's like, is that kind of unheard of? I don't think I've ever heard of a show touring three companies at the same time. Um, it's actually... It's not unheard of. I think I'm pretty sure that um, Lion King had five shows open at one point and Wicked for sure has had close to maybe five Lion King's numbers. Um, We're not quite at the Lion King Wicked numbers yet, actually. Um, And in fact, when Les Mis was in its sort of heyday, apparently at one point they had like 11 companies open. Um, And that was internationally, though. That was not just in the U.S. So that's obviously different. But um, the thing that is different about Hamilton is the the rate of growth. So we've actually only been open for a little over two years and we're looking at five companies. So it's the, it's the rate with which we've had to right employ, train, hire, open and cast employee train. Now your contracts are up in this company. So we're rehired. Like it's the, the sort of rate that we've been going at I think it's just what what is a a little bit faster it's not that we have more than any anything else it's just this particular growth is like very lateral very fast how do you fit it all in because I mean I don't know how you do it and like and like make time to like talk on podcasts (laughs) and like do all this other amazing stuff too like you're um you're the founder of Katie's Katie's art Art project Project. so like tell us about that as well I think it's such a beautiful beautiful thing you've done and I think it'd be great for people to hear yeah thank you we have big announcements coming next month so this is it's been really really good um how do I do everything I honestly don't know other than I really find it inspiring to connect with people and doing things like especially like things like this it's like if I'm not doing it to sort of motivate and inspire someone else then why the hell am I doing it so uh, uh, to me this is what's most important um but I I do find that you know, the longer I do this, the more I'm trying to find a balance. Like when I was doing in the Heights, I spent two years, obviously, like I told you before, dance captaining the show and learning what that was. And I just like worked so hard at such a clip that I woke up. I always say like, I feel like I woke up two and a half years later and I was like, where'd my life go? Like I like lost my life and I was determined never to let that happen again. And then when Hamilton came around, I was like, oh, this is like a perfect, perfect setup for me to do that again. Or to learn from my mistakes. And I think at the beginning, because I was the only one, like there was no other dance captain. And then when we opened up Broadway, Voltaire Wade Green joined me, but he was also a first time dance captain. So it was like training someone is sometimes just as hard as doing it yourself. And, and so, and now obviously like I actually just today, cause I'm holidays are around the corner. So I'm working on Christmas gifts. Like I now have 20 
like quote unquote employees. There are 20 people on my dance team with all the companies. And that's like a lot of people to like, be like, are you okay? Are you managing your job? Well, do you need help? Like, that's just like, it, it's suddenly like I'm running like a, a small business, which was not what, you know, so you have to, you have to really be careful and know that like, you can't be a lifeline to anyone. If you are drowning, like the right, the airplane oxygen mask adage, like all of those things that they say about taking care of yourself first are important and very difficult for people like me who are workaholics. So it's like just a constant daily practice, you know, like meditate, do yoga, go to the gym, take a day off, see your friends. Like all of those things are things that I have to like schedule in, remind myself to do. And not just for myself, but because what I found at the beginning on Broadway, like when I was building my team and Voltaire joined me and then Morgan Matayoshi joined me and then eventually David Guzman. But the thing that, that I found most disturbing was that I wasn't taking a break. And so therefore no one else felt like they could take a break. And I was watching them all crumble. And I was like, you're doing that, Stephanie. Like you are making them do that. And you have to, yeah. And you have to set the example that says like, work is important, but your life is important. And your work can't be good if your life is, 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 is suffering. And look, for some people as an artist, like it's all about the suffering and I'm not trying to take that away. And beautiful art comes from very dark places, but that's not actually sustainable, right? So you can die at 27 and write incredible music because, and then you ran yourself into the ground with a drug problem because you didn't take time to self-care and commit suicide. Like all of these musicians that die at 27, or you can make it to 65 and you can remember that you have to step out of the darkness and find some light. And light generally comes from connecting with friends, family, people, yourself, the universe, like that doesn't happen when your head is in the sand working. And so I've always been very, very conscious of that because I lost my best friend very early. And I've always had this feeling of like, this could just be it. Like you could just, you just get hit by a car tomorrow. And that is that. And that is not sad. And that is not depressing. That is beautiful and life. That is what it is. And so you just do what you do while you're here. And that means that you have to take a break. And so the answer, very long answer to your question, how do you do it all, is I constantly find myself being totally drained and reminding myself that I have to take a break and reminding myself that I have to spend time with people that I love and and do things that I really am passionate about. I started Katie's Art Project back at the Richard Rogers when I was doing it in the Heights. Um, I was 24, uh, and I felt like I had this opportunity to get all these unbelievable performers that I was working with um, in contact with this this population, basically, who I knew a lot about their experience. I didn't know what it was like to be them, right? Like, I don't know what it's like to be a child with cancer, but I did know what it was like to spend a lot of time in the hospital and live in that hospital environment. And I knew that the friends that I had been making as a performer could really enrich that environment. And I also knew that my performer friends who were searching for value and worth and these conversations that you said at the beginning, like, how do I know if I should be doing this? And what should I... like? spend a few hours with a child who's facing death and you will learn very quickly that those things that you think matter don't. And so I just saw value in, in these two groups learning from each other and really supporting each other in leaving a legacy, building a legacy, finding their worth, finding their voice. 
And so I set out to do that. And, um, and I've, uh, done a number of projects over the years, which have been amazing. Um, but this, we have some really exciting things coming down the pipeline and we just produced a song in collaboration with another organization called music is medicine. Um, I got a songwriter to meet up with a patient in hospital and through a number of series of visits, they've written the song and we had a director film the whole thing. So their music video is going to be ready. Yeah. So the idea is to kind of get a steady stream of these songwriters. Um, I won't mention names, but we have some really exciting people coming up this year. Um, (laughs) yeah. Um, and so we're doing it in partnership with, um, New York Presbyterian Morgan Stanley Children's Hospital of New York, which has been great, which we're now doing like a, basically what's quote unquote, like a residency with them where we just have like projects and they have already have a robust child life program there. Um, you know, we just felt like we could enhance it by bringing in these unbelievable performers. And, and the thing is, you know, what these performers bring is a platform that's, you know, pe- these are people that have like 10, 100,000, 1 million followers. And it's not about being like c- cancer awareness, raise money for cancer. It's not that like that's ha- being done. There's not a, there's not a, that's already being done and good on you raise money for that. What this is about is about creating an experience of life that feels worthy. It feels like it matters. It feels like the struggle is not for nothing. And it's also possible for people to recreate this in their own cities there's plenty of people that sit at home and play the guitar and just have fun. Like you can write music with a child from a local hospital. You can get together with, you know, like, so we can create obviously in a way that's controlled and safe an environment where we connect people and, and, and create a legacy through art is basically what we're looking to do. So, so I have a couple of other questions before we wrap up. Um, so one thing that you and I have, you know, have discussed in the past and, you know, for me, my focus really within the South Asian community, for me, sometimes like when I'm watching shows, like say I'll go see like a show on Broadway or something and say it's set in a place where it, you know, there should be Middle Eastern people or like, south asian people and the show itself borrows from that culture but there is nobody from those cultures in that show it's a very frustrating thing to watch as an observer you know what i mean so i don't like i'm still learning how to deal with that and i was wondering if you have any advice for me and other people who might be feeling the same way so i think that we're finding less and less because society is saying it's not okay which is great we're finding less and less that shows that are um, specific to a certain culture and or, you know, are naming a certain culture and using their uh, music, cultures, traditions, whatnot in the show, that they don't have anybody of that culture in the show. That's not existing in high schools. Yes, because you have the community that you're in. I've seen versions of In the Heights that are all white and it's totally crazy to me. But that's what they that's what they're working with, right? And good on them, they want to tell the story. Well, fine. Great. By all means, tell white people that immigrants matter. Okay. So there's that side of the coin. Um, and then there's the other side of the coin where you have, you know, um that was a sh- the show that George Dakai just did, the um, where the entire show, every cast member was Asian. Like they that show did not stay open very long, which is not, not happy about that, but that happened. 
Um, so what they didn't do was like throw like seven white people into the mix. Like that's not happening how it used to. It's still happening. I'm not saying it's not, but it's happening less and less. However, so that's what we can do as a creative team, right? As a creative team, we can say, we will not, uh, uh, disrespect your culture by not putting as many people from your culture in the show as we can. But what's not happening in the room, right? So if I say every company that, of Hamilton, we have to have at least two required dance calls a year. Now, we obviously have more when people are missing. But let's just do bare minimum math. If we have two required dance calls a year in at least two cities for every company, and we currently have five companies open, that simple math is at least 20 auditions throughout the country. And we do more, but let's just say it's 20. At those 20 auditions, we have somewhere between 100 and 200 men and women each. Let's just, again, round down. 20 auditions, 100 men, and 100 women. Okay? That's like, what is it, like 4,000? I mean, it's like, yeah. If I had to tell you what the race breakdown of that is, it's even, even being Hamilton. It's at least 50% white. If I had to tell you what percentage is South Asian, I kid you not, I would say it's 1%. I would say that I've seen a total of, in all my thousands of people auditioning for Hamilton over the last four years, I've maybe seen a total of, I'm going to be generous, 10 South Asians, dancers. Not, I've seen a lot more actually principals than many more principals. And that's really honestly because Tommy seeks them out because we, we feel we are underrepresented in that particular community. We've lately of late had, you know, we're always trying to find, you know, Chinese, Japanese, Filipino for whatever reason that, and I have reasons, which I'll tell you in a second and you know them because we've spoken about it, but the those communities have been underrepresented for us in Hamilton. And my theory is this, because I now feel I can't be, I'm not the performer being like, well, where's my opportunity? I'm on the other side of the table going, oh, people are like, Stephanie, how come you don't cast South Asian people on the show? And it's like, I've seen eight of them. And of those eight, none of them know Andy's style. None of them if they do dance really, really well, maybe they don't sing well. Like whatever the mixture of things is, is like, if you look at like just probability, the chances that those eight people of 4,000 are going to get the job, if it's just, it, the odds are against you. And so I think it's because, and I'm saying this, I feel like I can say this because I'm Jewish and I, I it's a similar situation in my family that my parents like I said to you before, they're doctors. And they, when I told them I wanted to be a dance major, they were like, that's not a real major. Like you can't dance for a living. Like you, you have to have a career. Right. So, so basically I was saying that Tommy seeks, he seeks those people out. Now in a dance call, I'm not going all the South Asian dancers in the world come, come here. So I'm just saying, whoever comes, comes. But what I'm finding is, and I say this as a Jewish woman whose parents are doctors and said to me, right. When I was in college that like dance is not a real major, they didn't push me to do a B 
be a performer or to study that or, you know, like, whereas like if I got a bad grade, they, I would be punished. But if I didn't do well at dancing, they wouldn't punish me. That was on me. That was my own personal thing. And I think that a lot of South Asians and uh, Asian communities have that same parenting. And so therefore we just don't exist in those numbers. Now, if you're following that logic, there's a lot of Jewish people in musical theater. So that's like, I don't think that the two things are directly correlated, but I think there's something to it. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. Like, I feel like, I mean, I'm kind of like one of the lucky few that when I was younger, my mom put me in ballet classes, you know what I mean? But I know like there are very few South Asian people that I know like my age or even like coming up that have that opportunity even to do it recreationally, you know? Yeah. So, so yeah, no, that totally, totally makes sense. Um, so just before we wrap up, I'm just going to ask you one more thing. What advice do you have for people that, um, like what's a recurring message, a recurring theme that you've learned throughout your career that could help them on this path? If they're wanting to start out, what's something that you could leave people with? I have a famous answer for that. And by famous, I mean, I don't end a single interview without being asked that question and without (laughs) giving the same exact answer that I give every time. And so here's my answer. And one day I'll be so well known that you'll already know what my answer is, (laughs) but it's this. Um, I read this interview one time in backstage uh, magazine or publication, the newspaper back when they used to actually print it. Um, And Marion Seldes, the late Marion, now late Marion Seldes, did an interview and the interviewer asked her, what advice do you have for people? Her answer was this. I don't have advice for anyone and I don't take advice from everyone. Everyone's paths are different. And if this is paraphrasing at the end, she basically was like, if you take people's advice and you're actually cutting off your own success. And so I believe that fully. And if someone like Marion Seldes who is as incredible and the profound work that she did in her career. If she feels that way at at that age, she was like around 80 at the time when she gave the interview, I think. Um, I'm certainly in my ripe 35, not going to give anyone advice, but I will say this. I, at the top of, cause I'm pretty sure that like Hamilton's like the top of the mountain right now at the top of this mountain, I, I don't look around and now there are more companies open. And I will say that the more companies that have opened, I have found this. Um, and I try to weed this out, but at the beginning, the original company, I can say this of the original company for sure. I never looked at a single person to my right or to my left and ever went, wow, that's, that's, that is the hardest per- person working in the room. I, I always felt that way a little, cause it's now 1am and I'm having a little trouble saying this clearly, but like I looked around the room and every single person was the hardest working person I had ever met. Like mutually exclusively, it was like, you all are absolutely using all of your skills and working as hard as you possibly can at using those skills that are needed in this show. And I don't feel like, I feel like when you look around at the top, like I remember when I was younger and I would go on auditions and like, I would sometimes audition for like a regional show and people would be like so rude and so like, I'm better than, and I did this and I did that braggy way. I was in if then with Adina Menzel and Anthony Rapp and Lashans and Jen Colella. And I could go down the list because every person that cast is amazing. Never once did I see a single one of those human beings egos. Not once, not once. 
Not even, not even one time where someone slipped. No, not one freaking time did one of those persons pull the, well, I'm better than you card on anyone. Everybody just came to work to do their job. And I find that the thing that people think that you have to be in order to be great, which is be egoy, that's a, that's a misconception of people that actually aren't great at their job. And so you find that a lot at like the layers below the greatness at the top it's from insecurity, right? Probably. I, I mean, it maybe I don't, I, I honestly have yet to find a reason for you to make people feel like you're better than them. I don't understand that. I don't, whatever it is, I don't find that to be a security blanket quite honestly, but obviously people do. Um, but at the top that don't, people are mean people are, there's definitely humanness, but that just doesn't happen. And like, so there's be humble and work hard. And that's, those are the two qualities that I find are the common theme in greatness when I feel that I'm surrounded by greatness, which I feel I've been lucky enough to have a lot in my life. And so, you know, I don't give advice like I think you should do this, but my observation of being in a lot of quote unquote room rooms where it has happened, um, that's what I, I notice when I look around. These people work their butts off. They're the hardest working people I know. And they're humble about it. They don't throw it in their talent in people's faces. Yeah. Stephanie, thank you so much. I, I know it's 1am there and you know, you've been rehearsing all day and (laughs) um, this is like conference calls and you know, I really, really appreciate it. And you're like the second person I've interviewed and I'm so excited about this because I think it's going to be really helpful for people to hear from you. Oh my gosh, you're awesome. And I'm so glad you're putting this together. Like it's so needed. It's really, it's like the more information people can get, the better. And it's specifically speaking for, for the cultural conversation in musical theater. It's so important. So thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. I have so much love, respect, and admiration for you. And I'm so excited to see the amazing things you continue to, you know, manifest in your life. So with that, I'll let you get to sleep (laughs) And, and I'm sure we'll talk soon, but I love you. And thank you so much for doing this. Thank you, Crystal, of course. Love you so much. And I can't wait to see you together with this. And it's going to be awesome. I know it.